goes without saying the last year has kind of been a tumultuous year, right? In the history of our nation. A lot of things have changed, and most of it's not been positive. Last year, if you remember, which we don't want to, but last year we couldn't even meet together uh, to celebrate uh, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior because we're under lockdown. And we, with a, again, a tremendous portion of the country, are still suffering under the effects of governmental mandates and edicts concerning this virus situation that, for the most part, is survivable across the board at about a 99% rate. We live in a fallen world, and in a fallen world there's always a tremendous amount of uncertainty, sadness, sorrow, heartache. But it seems like over the last year these things have been accelerated on an exponential basis. And at the same time, it seems that the kingdom of darkness is advancing rapidly, again, seemingly unopposed. Rioting, looting, vandalism became the quote-unquote activities of many of our major cities last summer, uh, along with uh, increased racial hatred and tensions. Chaos and anarchy were in our streets. At the same time, our so-called leaders were calling for the abolition of the police. So we're living in a time where there's a complete abandonment of any kind of objective reality uh, because the godless mind, the depraved mind uh, that does not work properly has taken over. In fact, just this last week I saw it, and perhaps you saw it too, uh, there was an uh, article that uh, the Gallup people put out uh, for the first time since the poll began, I think it began in 1937, there are more people who say they do not believe in God or attend church than those who say they do believe in God. So for the first time since 1937, according to this poll, uh, there are more people who are not uh, believers in God than there are believers in God. Whatever that poll means. Obviously, I mean, what de- identifies a believer. But what it tells us, I think, is the the scale continues to tip in the wrong direction, right? The scale continues to tip further and further away from God, further and further away from the truth. And from a biblical standpoint, uh, our culture has gone mad. Fear rather than truth is what the governing authorities use to maintain control over the masses. And the so-called intellectuals of our time are attempting a coup, at least over the language, if not more, but over the language by redefining reality and promoting every kind of perversion the fallen mind uh, can make up. And usually it's at the expense of women and children. Hope you notice, notice that. Because those are the people who are suffering the most under this whole transgenderism ideal. It's women and children. We don't find ourselves here in this situation by accident. It's the fruit, if you will, of a, a people or individuals in the country, really, and around the world who have wholeheartedly abandoned and rejected both God and his word. And as a result of that, there's a certain built-in consequence to the whole system, a, the, a built-in consequence to the whole structure of God's creation. And when that happens, this consequence comes. When men abandon the word of God, the Bible tells us that God abandons men. And when men abandon God's word and God abandons men, then the devil, the father of lies, who is the ruler of this world, he works overtime to increase the chaos uh, to God's greatest creation, that being mankind. Now, it's not the direction I'm going to go this morning, but I do want to point out to you what we're witnessing in the world and the culture around us is really the reality of Romans chapter 1. It's the wrath of abandonment. It's consequential wrath. Again, as a people, we've abandoned God. Therefore, God is taking his restraining hand away and allowing fallen men to go their own way and to face the consequences of their action. And consequential wrath can be seen in the idea of sowing and reaping. Right? You go out to your field, you you plow it, you get exactly what you have sown into that field. You do not sow wheat into your field and expect to harvest a corn. And if you sow disorder, you're going to reap chaos. Likewise, you can't expect to sow unrighteousness and wickedness and produce anything that is holy, righteous, or good. That's where we're at. We're living under the times of the wrath of God's abandonment. God is removing his straining hand. He's allowing fallen mankind to go his own way and to face the consequences. And the consequences of abandoning God, the Romans chapter 1 tells us, is all kinds of unrighteousness. Wickedness, greed, evil, murder, strife, deceit, malice, uh, etc., and so forth. So when men abandon God, God gives men over. 
And there's a list there in that chapter that progressively goes down. God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. It begins with sexual sin. The sexual revolution, uh, immorality rampant. Then it moves towards homosexuality, both female and male homosexuality. It goes a little bit further down to a depraved mind or a useless mind that does not only those things that are not proper, but at the same time promotes those kinds of activities for others to come and do with him. Where perversion is exalted and lifted up as normal and those things that are honorable and noble and pure are mocked and ridiculed. That's the culture in which we live. That's the world we're a part of. And in the insanity of a fallen mind under the inspiration of Satan himself, the world thinks it's advancing when in reality it's moving further and further towards God's condemnation. The other night in our Good Friday service, I read out of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Just listen, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Sound like any world you're a part of? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light, who substitute darkness for light, light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Verse 24, that chapter says, So their root will become like rot, and their blossom blown away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. That is exactly where we are. And I said that night that when a people reject the word of God, when they reject God and his word, when they despise it as a nation, they are done. They're done. And they're really being readied for the slaughter that is about to come. That is a biblical truth. And that's the truth that people in this country would do well to pay attention to and listen to what God says on these issues. And men may reject the Bible, but God still says, I hold you accountable to my word, right? So God still holds men accountable to the reality of his word. God has made himself known to all of uh, mankind through creation, through uh, revelation of himself in uh, the creation, but then revelation of himself uh, through the literal revelation, his word. But what men do in their wickedness is they suppress that. In unrighteousness, they hold that truth down. They fight against that truth. They hold it down in unrighteousness because fallen men and women would rather live without God and believe the lies of Satan than to be accountable to the person of God himself. Now, as much as it seems that things have changed and changed rather rapidly in the last year, the truth is, from a biblical standpoint, listen, there is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. And again, everything that we're seeing in our day, in our time, is the result of the abandonment of truth, the rejection of God. But there's nothing new about that. There's nothing novel about that. There's nothing modern about rejecting God. Therefore, the only thing that can be done to give men hope, those who are trapped in their own sin, trapped in their own lies, trapped in the lies of the evil one, the only thing that can be done to bring order out of chaos, hope out of despair, is a proclamation of the truth. Because again, while many things have changed, the reality is things are the same today as they were some 2,000 years ago. And again, there's only one hope for the world. That is the proclamation of the truth. The fact of the historical reality of the person of Jesus Christ. Again, a person of history with overwhelming historical evidence to support not only his life, not only his death, but also his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ really, truly, physically, literally, historically defeated death. And that historical reality, listen to me, changes everything. That changes everything. And that reality brings forth some truths that we want to, we need to consider this morning. So with that said, I want you to take your Bible and open up to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. And we'll pick it up in verse 16. And when we come to verse 16 of uh, Acts chapter 17, I want you to realize that the world then is not much different than the world now. 
Right? The world ends just like it is now. It's a world of rebellion against God. It's a world without the knowledge of God, a knowledge of the true God. Therefore, it's a world without hope. When we come to uh, verse uh, uh, 16 here, we find the Apostle Paul is on the run. Seems like wherever he goes, there are people who don't like him. Most specifically, they don't like the message that he keeps proclaiming about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. But it's the message that everybody desperately needs to hear and everybody desperately needs to believe because it is the most important message. So again, he's on the run. He's been forced to flee Thessalonica and Berea. He's hated. He's persecuted. He's being pursued. He finds himself alone in Athens. He's been sent there by the brethren in Berea for his safety. He is supposed to go there to lay low. But that's not kind of his personality. He's supposed to go there to hide out, to blend in, to be uh, inconspicuous, and wait for Silas and Timothy, his co-laborers, to join him. But again, that's not his personality. Athens, the city that he is in, was one time the greatest city of the world. In Paul's day, Corinth had probably replaced Athens as the most important political and commercial center in Greece, but Athens had not lost any of its cultural significance. So it's still a philosophical center of the ancient world, uh, home of the world's most famous universities, the religious center of the world where almost every god in existence was worshipped. And it was this gross manifestation of idolatry that stirred Paul's heart into action. Because when he came into that city, he saw a city full of lost men and women who were doomed to a Christless eternity, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked uh, within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. Now, Paul probably is the least likely spokesman for Christianity. Spent the first portion of his life immersed in Judaism. He was a hater of Christ. He was a hater of the followers of Christ. Spent a good portion of his life persecuting and pursuing uh, Christians, imprisoning them, even putting them to death. But one fateful day that is recorded in the book of uh, Acts, the ninth chapter, uh, Paul is traveling along the road to Damascus. He's in hot pursuit of those who are following Christ. And then this man, who is at that time known as Saul of Tarsus, has a first-hand encounter himself with the risen, resurrected Christ. It's a first-hand encounter. A first-hand personal encounter with the risen Christ. And that encounter radically transformed and redirected this man's life. Now again, up to this point, until this moment on the Damascus Road, he was not a believer. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a hater of Christ. But now everything changes. Because the resurrected Christ changes everything. He's confronted with the reality of the resurrection of Christ. He's confronted with his blasphemy against him. He sits three days in blindness in the dark. His sight is eventually restored, and then God makes him his own vessel, a chosen instrument. He chooses him to be a proclaimer of Christ. Therefore, when Paul speaks, he speaks truth concerning Christ. He speaks with one who has firsthand eyewitness account of the historical factualness of Christ's resurrection. And he has been placed by God to be Christ's spokesman. And again, he didn't put himself in that place. God put him in that place. He's a slave now of Christ. His entire life has been turned upside down. He changes from an enemy of Christ to Christianity's foremost champion with one single desire of his life to make Christ known. So he comes into the city and he sees this city full of uh, idols and his heart begins to burn with anger because he sees that God is not properly given the place of preeminence. That God is being robbed of his glory and the Athenians are, are guilty of practicing a blasphemy against the true God in their idolatrous practices. Therefore, Paul channels his emotions into actions, and he begins to reason or discuss with those whom he comes in contact with concerning the truth about the person of Jesus Christ, verse 17. So as he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the marketplace every day, so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present, right? So his custom was in any city he went to, he always went to the synagogue first, right? He's a, he's a Jew, he has a love for his Jewish brethren, he wants to, them to understand the truth about who Jesus Christ really is, and then he would go to the Gentiles. Verse 18, it says, some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others 
he seems, uh, other say, uh, he seems to be proclaiming strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Right? He, he doesn't have a second sermon. Okay? He has one message. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And I'll stop and make a parenthetical comment. This was and this is the message of the church. Contrary to so much of so-called modern evangelicalism today, we don't have another message. The church of Jesus Christ has one message. It's the person of Jesus Christ himself crucified and Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Period. Exclamation point. Preach that one everywhere you go. Stop messing with all of this nonsense of trying to change or fix or adjust the culture, etc. and so forth. You're not going to do it. Stop bringing in Marxist theology. Try to put a Christianized veneer over the top of it. He had one message. Jesus in the resurrection. In fact... That one message, Jesus and the resurrection, is actually the reason for the church's existence. When Jesus was taken captive and he was put on trial by the Romans, he was executed. You go back and look at the text, you see those who were following him were in what? Fear. Right? They, they were fearful because he is dead. That's a fact of history. Christ died and all those who followed him lost hope. I mean, what do you have to hope in when your master whom you're following is dead? What kind of hope is there in a dead Savior? Everything is lost. Fear has come over the group. They're in hiding. They're dejected. They're in great sorrow, great sadness, again, with nothing to look forward to, asking what's next. What do we do because Jesus is dead? So, too, all our hopes and all of our dreams. But then something happened. Something changed. And what changed was Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, at first, his own followers didn't believe the story. Jesus is risen from the dead. Yeah, that, that's sure, right? Paraphrase, but that's pretty much what they said. Who believes that kind of stuff? Because living in a world, we probably have figured it out by now that dead people tend to stay dead. Dead people coming back to life, that's nonsensical talk. The women go to the tomb the first morning after the crucifixion. They get there and they find the stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. The angel appears to the women and asks, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is risen, just as he said. Look here to the place where he is laying, and they'll quickly tell his disciples that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The women, they go back obediently to the disciples. They tell them, and the disciples don't believe. They don't believe the women. Why? It's logical. Dead people tend to stay dead. Peter rises up, goes to the tomb. John goes with him. And just like the women said, he is not there. He is risen. He first appeared to Mary Magdalene, then to the other Mary, then to Peter later on in the day, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to apostles without Thomas. Then he appeared to the, to the apostles with Thomas present. He appeared to the seven by the lake of Tiberias and then to a multitude of 500 plus believers on the Galilean mountain. He appeared to James, then he appeared to the eleven apostles after the death of Judas. He appeared to the apostles in his ascension, then to Stephen, and then to Paul on the road to Damascus, and then again to Paul in the temple, and then to John on the island of Patmos. There's no logical reason for the church to exist if Jesus Christ is still in the tomb. Something lifted the followers of Christ out of their despair to which his death, his death cast them. And what that was is the fact that Jesus Christ crucified, risen from the dead. He had risen from the dead. They'd seen him. They talked with him. They walked with him. They even ate with him. Again, how else do you explain the phenomena of the church? There's no church of Jesus Christ if Jesus Christ is dead in the tomb. Not only that, how do you explain the fact that the church worships on the first day of the week, on Sunday? Because for the Jews, the original day of worship and rest was Saturday, the Sabbath. That was the day that God finished with the creation and rested. And on the seventh day, he was finished. And keeping the Sabbath for Jewish believers or Jewish individuals was the most reverential thing they could do. They were into keeping the Sabbath. 
But now, all of a sudden, the people who were originally called away are early Christians. They didn't worship on the seventh day. They didn't worship on the Sabbath. They worship on the first day of the week. Why is that? Because that's the day they first saw Jesus Christ resurrected from the tomb. Right? Resurrected from the, from the, from the dead. First day of the week, Sunday. Stop and ask yourself a question of the historical reality of the situation. How do you account for that? Considering, again, keeping the Sabbath was a very important thing for the Jews, and the first Christians were actually Jews. How else do you explain the, from Saturday to Sunday worship without the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How is it, again, that a group of people, Jewish individuals that are fanatically attached to the Sabbath, move their day of worship to Sunday because the first day of the week is when they came in contact with the risen Jesus Christ. That's when he rose from the dead. Now, we meet here each and every Sunday. And each and every Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection. We don't have to wait one year for a special uh, day that only occurs one time on the calendar. Because for us, each and every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Amen? Every Sunday. Every Sunday is a quote-unquote Easter celebration, if you will. It's a celebration of the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why you're in this room, if you know Christ. Verse 17 again. Paul was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Verse 18, again, some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, it seems to be, a, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the Epicureans at the time, they were a popular group of philosophers. Uh, they believed that everything happened by chance, that nobody was in charge of anything. They believed that if there were any deities, any gods, they were apathetic, they were indifferent. And they could do nothing to affect anyone's lives. They believed there was no afterlife. They didn't believe, obviously, in a resurrection. And they believed that if God was there, they were detached. These gods were detached. They could care less what happens to men in their lives. They believe there's no afterlife. They believe that this life is all there is. They believe that they could live their lives without any ultimate consequences, do whatever they wanted to do in this life, and when you die, you just die. They taught the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain was the chief end of man. And again, since there's no consequences because there's no God, you could do anything you want. You could live as immorally as you want. In essence, they're materialists. They're, they're, they're naturalists. They, they attacked anything they saw that was a, a, a religious or supernatural. They, peop, they thought people who thought those kind of things were irrational. These people were agnostic at best, but more practical atheists. That's the Epicureans. The Stoics, on the other hand, Contrasting to the practical atheism of the Epicureans, they were pantheists. They believe that everything is God. You're God. I'm God. The tree is God. The chair is God. He's God. We're all God. Right? So if God is everything, pantheists, right? God is everywhere and in all things. If God is everywhere and in everything, then there's a unity in mankind, and we ought to just get along. Everything's determined by fate. Everything's determined by just blind luck. If you're going to get ahead in life, they would teach, then you're going to have to take control of your own life and uh, because there is anybody out there that can help you. They would have uh, rejoiced in Henley's poem where it says, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my own soul. Right? They, they understood that philosophy and you've seen that philosophy. Stoics got no use for the resurrection. They have no use for the afterlife. They have no use for morality, no use for God. Because they are God. They're the only one that matters. Now, of course, we realize these views aren't... Didn't I say at the beginning, there's nothing new under the sun? These, these aren't new. These philosophies are just as popular today as they were in Paul's time. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. And we realize that both of these philosophies of life do not go far enough to provide anybody any kind of real hope. There's no hope in these philosophies for real problems in a fallen world. There's no hope to face uncertainty or no hope to face fear and loneliness. There's no hope to overcome sadness, sorrow, heartache. There's no hope of overcoming sinfulness and moral failure. There's no hope of providing any kind of real answers for life and no hope of providing any kind of real answers for the problem of 
death. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. What would this idle babbler wish to say? It really is a statement of derision. The philosophers of the day, the educated, were listening to uh, Paul speak, and they're saying, well, you know what he says is not much. What he says is pretty insignificant. It's meaningless, it's pointless, it's nonsensical. He's just a babbler. Idle babbler, the word actually means seed picker. It's like little sparrows out flittering around and picking a seed up here and picking something else up here and picking it up over that way. And that's what they said. He, they, they said, well, you know, he just sounds like somebody's picking this stuff up all over the place. And he picks up a scrap here and an idea over there and he puts it all together. It's all nonsensically put together and he tries to pass it off as profundity. So they're mocking him. They're looking down upon him. They're passing him off as uneducated and unintelligent, which is exactly what so many of the so-called intellectuals of our day do to those who proclaim Jesus Christ in the gospel, right? You people, you backwoods hicks, right? You're probably a threat to the country because you're so stupid to believe that Jesus Christ is actually God come in the flesh raised from the dead. Nobody believes that. Well, we believe that, right? It's not nobody. That's these guys. They're looking down on Paul with derision. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others says he seems to be proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, they're saying those things in part because they don't understand the truth, but they're saying those things in part because, listen, they don't want to hear what he has to say. They don't want to hear the truth. They do not want to hear that God became a man and took on human flesh. They do not want to hear that God has come into the world in the form of man for their salvation. They do not want to hear the fact that they are sinners in desperate need of salvation, facing the eternal wrath of God for their sin. They don't want to hear that. Nor do they want to accept that message, that they are in sinners, therefore they are in a great deal of trouble before a holy God. They don't want to hear that Jesus lived the perfect life. They don't want to hear that he died in order to be the substitute to pay the penalty for their sin. They don't want to hear that there was and there is no other way to be saved. There's no other way to be reconciled to God. No other hope of heaven except through this one person, Jesus Christ. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that salvation is a free gift of God by grace alone, that a man can do nothing to earn it, that he can never do anything to deserve it because he doesn't. It's a gift. They don't want to hear about that. They don't want to hear about the cross, the fact that Jesus had to suffer and indeed did rise from the dead, providing forgiveness and justification and eternal life for those who would repent and believe, having conquered sin, death, hell, and Satan. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that there is indeed an afterlife and how you live your life in time does indeed matter. They didn't want to hear the fact that there's a judgment to come and they didn't want to hear the fact that they're all accountable to God. And they most certainly didn't want to hear the fact that they are all in a whole lot of trouble. A whole lot of trouble. They didn't want to hear that. This teaching about strange deities. But that's the message they needed to hear. That's the message Paul brought. Again, he's got one sermon. He preached Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Now, while that's the message they didn't want to hear... That's obviously the message people in our day don't want to hear, right? Nothing's changed. But that's the very message that people need to hear. That's the most important message. The most relevant message. Listen, that message is the only hope for this world. It's the only hope for the world. Verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus is a court named because of the hill which it sits on. In essence, it's the Supreme Court of Athens. The power in that court fluctuated over the centuries, but it was that very court that at one time tried and condemned Socrates centuries earlier. And it's this court that deals not only with civil and criminal issues, but it's also this court that deals with issues regarding philosophy, religion, and Paul is going to stand before them. The proceedings open with a question. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, we may know, or may we know, what this teaching is that you are proclaiming, For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. We want to know what you're talking about. We know you're talking in the synagogues. We know you're stopping and talking to people in the marketplace. 
And pretty much underlying the issue is these guys, the Stoics and the Epicureans, they don't like what he's saying. They certainly don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe that God becomes a man. They don't believe that God dies on a cross and raises from the dead, etc. and so forth. But there are a few in the group that want to hear. What, what, what are you talking about? This philosophy, this new religion, right? That this guy is proclaiming. Now, I don't think anybody in this group is motivated by an eagerness to hear from the word of God. Right? I, I think it's a little more cynical, skeptical response. But they wanted to hear what this foreign religious person and his ideas has to say. Verse 21. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing of something new. Well, that sounds different. Haven't heard that one before. Well, this guy, man, he's got something different, different kind of religious idea than we've ever heard. The, the message of the cross, the person of Christ. You know, this is interesting. It allows us to occupy a few hours in the afternoon. And again, not that initially they were generally interested in it, but it was new, it was different. Because deep down, whatever they believed in brought no ultimate fulfillment. No hope, no ultimate answers to the issues of life. They're worshiping a pantheon of gods. All these false gods, all these false deities that they worship, none of them satisfied, and they knew it. Their hearts were empty. They knew that the idols had no ultimate answers for life, and most certainly no ultimate answers for death to come. Now, idolatry in Athens, in, in Paul's day, is really no different than the idolatry that we're caught up here in the United States at the present. Obviously, we don't worship icons made of gold and silver and stone. We worship different idols. We worship power, authority, influence. We worship money and things, boats, houses, cars, clothing. And many people in our country, many people around the world, are just making their own way in life, doing their own thing, expecting the little g-gods whom they worship to serve them, to get them where they want to go, what they want to accomplish. And if those little g-gods let them down, they just set them aside and go find a different one. Go find a new one that can provide for you what you want, make your life better. But again, like all, fi- all false idols, they're futile. All false idols have no answers to life. Therefore, we tend to be just like the Athenians, who not only worship false idols, verse 21 again says, uh, we spend our time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Have you noticed that? How many people around you are really serious, even in the, the world of the pandemic, we're all going to die. How many people are really serious about life? How many people do you come across that sit down and have long conversations about the reality of God? The fact that one day we're going to stand before him, we're going to give an account for our lives. The fact that we are all finite beings, that we're all facing death. Most people spend no time in those subjects. They spend no time in reality. What they do is they spend their time in fantasy. They're on the internet, doing video games, watching TVs, movies, gossip, telling or hearing something new, avoiding the old painful truths of life in a fallen world. And again, it's a reality, my dear friends. It doesn't matter if the COVID gets you or doesn't get you. Death is coming for everybody. Not going to escape it. Not going to outsmart it. I'll be the one. No, you won't. Across the board, one out of one people die. Some of us die young, some of us die old, but we're all going there. Unless the Lord Jesus Christ should return for us. Instead of speaking about reality of things, instead of spending our time with truth, we create idols, idols in our mind. We waste our time out of pursuing trivial things. We completely are avoid of uh, serious issues, right? Because that's where idolatry leads. Idolatry always leads to futility of man's thinking. Idolatry actually leads people to believe that they are indeed the master of their own fate and the captain of their own soul. People actually believe that. People actually believe there's no God but them. People actually believe that they're accountable to no one. And the ultimate purpose for life is for them to have pleasure, however they pursue it. But Paul's a realist. Paul understands the reality of how things are. And he takes this opportunity to speak truth and the truth in these people's lives who desperately need to hear truth. So what he does in this situation, he declares succinctly the gospel. 
And he does it in a three-part sermon. Point number one in the sermon in response to the question, may we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming? And Paul stood in the middle of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are religious in all aspects or all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Point number one of his sermon, there's only one God. There's only one God. There's only one true God and he's noble. Paul starts off with a little bit of a commendation, right? He commends the Athenians that they're at least they were they're not uh, they were they were supernaturalists, right? They had a, a religious devotion. They worshipped in ignorance. And obvious that first step towards knowing God is at least believing there's a supernatural. Because those people who live their life denying the existence of God, deny the supernatural, think that the world is and that world is all there is. Those kind of people aren't even gonna look. That's why the lie of evolution is so damning. The lie of the devil. Because it takes out the supernatural. Evolution tries to impose uh, nothing but the natural order of things as the ultimate cause or the ultimate of the universe. Therefore, those who proclaim the cosmos is all there ever is or ever was or ever will be, ignore the evidence, ignore truth. They will invent in their mind a reality that doesn't exist. Therefore, they won't even search for the true and the living God. Verse 22, again, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, or what therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So in essence, Paul's saying, look, atheism is not true. Agnosticism is not true like the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers are, are, are peddling. Nor is idolatry in the form of worshiping a pantheon of gods and goddesses. Listen, this unknown God that you have set up an altar to, I know him. I know him. I've met him. He is knowable. And the evidence for his existence is overwhelming. Therefore, let me tell you about him. Point number two in Paul's sermon, what God is like. What the true God is like. He is eternal spirit. And he is the creator, verse 24. He is the God who made the world and all things in it. Right? He is the Lord, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, guess what? You're not. And since he's the Lord of heaven and earth, guess what? You're accountable to him. And guess what? You're not the master of your own fate. You're not the captain of your own soul. He's in charge and you're not. And one day you're going to stand and you're going to give an account to him. One day you're going to stand before him, give an account for your life. He is the transcendent one. He is the one who is above and beyond the created universe. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. Right? He's transcendent. He is the giver and the sustainer of life. He needs nothing from men. Verse 25, Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. He's the governor of the universe. Verse 26, For he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and their boundaries of their habitation. He's in charge. He's imminent meaning that he is near. He's not some far-off deity uh, that's unknowable and detached. He's noble and he wants to be known. Verse 27, that if they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So who is this true God? He's the eternal spirit who created. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, the one whom all men will stand before and give an account for their lives. He is the giver and sustainer of lives. He is the governor, the controller of the universe. He is the transcendent one above and beyond creation. Yet he's imminent in his creation. He's noble. Listen to Psalm 145, verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, and all who call upon him is true. In truth. Right? The Lord is near to all who call upon him, and all who call upon him is truth. He is close, and he wants to be known. So there's one true and living God who's transcendent, one who's above and beyond his creation, the one who's not limited to this physical world, 
yet he is present in this physical world, and you can know him. He's noble, he's near to those who call upon him. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So Paul acknowledges the fact that even some of their own poets got it right. They looked around at creation, and they saw the reality that there must be a God who made everything. Why? Because there's complexity and order and design. If there's complexity, order, and design, that means there has to be a designer. One who personally made all these things. One who has personality. One who has rationality. One who has intellect. One who enjoys beauty. Because that's what man is like. We enjoy rational thinking. We enjoy things that are beauty and order and complex and have a design, right? And if we enjoy that, if we're like that, then there has to be one who made us to enjoy those things. And there is. He's the creator. So with one fell swoop, he destroys idolatry. Verse 29. Being the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like silver or gold or stone, an image and form of art and the thought of man. He wipes out all of idolatry. The idols are gone. He shows the utter futility and the foolishness of idolatry. There's only one God. He's the creator. You didn't make him. Therefore, most certainly, he's not found in any image that you would create with your hand or any image you'd create with your thoughts. He's not found in gold, silver, or stone. Again, he's not even found in the vain imaginations of your mind. And how foolish it is for mankind, and we do this, right? We worship what we have made with our own hands or with the imagination of our own minds, rather than worshiping the true and the living God, the one who created us. So in their great education and all of their great philosophy and their great intellectual ability, the reality is they were nothing more than foolishly ignorant. There is a God, one who can be known. Look up, the heavens declare his handiwork. He does not give you the option of being your little g-god. He doesn't do your bidding when you've got some problem or some issue or some want he doesn't allow you the option of serving other gods to your own liking uh, when he doesn't come and meet your felt needs. He's not that kind of God. The true and the living God is God above all. He's Lord above all lords. He's the king of kings. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. He's not available to do men's bidding. He rules. He rules. He governs. He has authority over men. He controls them. Men don't control him. He's the one who sets the boundaries of the nations. He's the one who chooses when one rises and when one falls. And since there is a God, and this God can be known, this God who is your creator, this transcendent eternal spirit, who is uh, absolutely unopposed as the sovereign Lord, then you had better listen to what he has to say. Point three in the sermon, God has spoken. Verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring all men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So this one true and living God that exists, he speaks, he speaks clearly, he doesn't stutter, doesn't stammer. He is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent having overlooked the times of ignorance. God has been very merciful and long-suffering with men. They have rejected his revelation and creation. They've sought rather to worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. That is why the Green New Deal is such a big deal, because when you refuse to worship the creator, you worship the creation. And God made this creation for his own purposes. God made this earth for the redemption of mankind absolutely guarantee you that this world will live will exist until god is through with it not going to destroy it by driving your suv or cows out in the field doing what they do out in the field it's nonsense god is in charge not men and god has been very patient with men who have and continue to suppress the truth and unrighteousness God has been very patient with men who have rejected the truth that he has made known to them personally, intimately. He has been very patient with men who refuse to honor him or give him thanks. 
How often do you stop and just thank the Lord for the day? How often do you stop and just thank the Lord for the next breath you take that belongs to Him and His universe? People in the world don't do that. They refuse to honor Him. They refuse to give Him thanks. Yet they walk around and profess themselves to be wise. And the Bible says they're nothing but utter fools. They've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. But no more. Times of ignorance are over. While God has dealt with sin and deals with sin with those who rebel against him, God is declaring there is a day of wrath coming. There is a day coming of inescapable judgment. And he's saying that all men everywhere should repent. They should immediately get on their knees before him. They should confess their sin. They should turn away from their sin. They should turn away from their utter rejection of him and embrace him as sovereign Lord of their life because the times of ignorance are over. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere they should repent, verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. So the one true and living God, the God who is transcendent, the Lord God of all, the one who is over all the heavens and the earth, he's spoken clearly, and he has said that he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. God is declaring that there's a day of coming, a day coming of righteous judgment, which will lead to the destruction of all the ungodly, of all ungodliness. And it's a terrifying day. It's a terrifying day. A terrifying day of judgment, an inescapable day. When God's wrath and his fury is going to be poured out. And unsaved, unredeemed men are going to face it straight on. All those who have rejected him in time. A day of righteous judgment for all those who have failed to honor him as Lord. A day of righteous judgment for all who have failed to give him the place of preeminence. That they so rightly, that he so rightly deserves in their lives. Well, how's he going to do this? Verse 31 continues, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. Through a man whom he has appointed. Well, who is this man that God has appointed? How will we know who this judge is? Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere they should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That man that God has appointed, that man whom God has sent forth to be the judge, is the one whom God raised from the dead, and that is none other than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. No more excuses. No more discussion. You are not having a conversation when you die and say, I'm going to stand before God, and then I'm going to explain to God why I didn't repent. There's not going to be that discussion. You're not going to get an opportunity to play the ignorant card. I didn't know. I didn't know you were there. I didn't know there was a judgment coming. I didn't know there was a Savior, a Redeemer, or a Judge. You're not going to use that. Times of ignorance are over. God has furnished proof to the reality of what he says by raising this person from the dead. God speaks. He speaks clearly. All men need to repent. There's a coming day of judgment through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom God raised from the dead. And God himself again has provided evidence, proof to all men. Again, there's a judgment coming. And the issue is, what are you going to do with that truth? What will you do with that truth? Every man will be judged by what they do with that truth. So God raises Jesus Christ from the dead to be the Savior, and God raises Jesus Christ to be the judge of all men for those who reject his mercy, for those who reject forgiveness of sin. So stop and consider this Sunday morning how eternally dangerous it is not to believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. God's spoken. He's spoken clearly. The evidence of his reality is all around us. He's the Lord, the creator. Every man is accountable to him and every man is going to stand before him and either face him as savior or stand before him and face him as judge. Now, failure to believe this, failure to believe the resurrection, failure to believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not an intellectual issue. I've told you this numerous times. It's a moral issue. The reason men do not believe or the answer to the question, why are there so many people that don't believe when there's overwhelming evidence 
It's not intellectual. It's not rational. It's moral. It's spiritual. Psalm 14.1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And the proof that that foolishness of unbelief is really not intellectual, but in fact moral, it's clear from the rest of the verse. Psalm 14.1 goes on and says, they are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. So the rejection of God appeals to those who are trying to avoid judgment for their sinful lifestyle. But avoidance of God is irrational because you can't escape God. It's a fallen mind. Unbelief is found in the fact that men love their sin. Book of John. There is a true light which coming into the world enlightened every man. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. Bottom line truth is men reject God because they love their sin. They don't want to stand before God and face his judgment for their lifestyle. Therefore, they refuse to face the reality of what God says to be true about them. They refuse to acknowledge the person of God and they just pretend the whole thing doesn't exist. Therefore, they wrongly believe if they refuse to take seriously the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then perhaps somehow they might escape that coming day of wrath. Again, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They live in an alternative reality, an alternative universe. I don't like what the truth is. Don't like what you're saying here this morning. So I'll just create a different one. Okay. But you're not the master of your own fate or the captain of your own soul. God is. What's the response to this powerful sermon that Paul preaches? Verse 32. You might have guessed, it's probably pretty predictable. Verse 32, now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some of the men joined him and believed, and among them were Dionysius and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. On the surface, there's three responses to the sermon. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. A group mocks Paul. A group jeers him. Right? They deride him. They treat him with contempt. And they refuse to believe. There's a second group. Others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. They postpone it. They put it off. But in reality, that's also disbelief. Because not to immediately embrace the truth, the most monumental truth of life in Christ's resurrection from the dead is nothing more than veiled unbelief. And not only that, it's foolishness. Because none of us knows how long we're going to live. No man knows in this room whether you're gonna, your heart's going to beat in the next minute or even for the rest of the day. And if your heart should stop this day and your answer to the truth is, well, I'll get back to you tomorrow, God, you don't have tomorrow. You may end up facing God in judgment this very day. And if you do, you'll either face him as savior or you'll face him as judge. It's foolishness to postpone responding to that truth because you don't ever know when you're going to die. It's foolishness to face God in judgment when he offers before you a tremendous gift of mercy. The last response, the only appropriate response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 33, again, so Paul went out of the midst, verse 34, some of the men joined him and believed among them Dionysus the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. The only appropriate response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is immediate belief. So what's your response? Will you reject the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead? Will you mock the resurrection? Will you sneer at it? Or wait till tomorrow to make a decision, not knowing if tomorrow will come? Or will you join with those men and women here in the book of Acts and those throughout all of history and many, many of us in this room and believe? What will you do with the truth? Because the implications of the reality of the resurrection of Christ are many. The historical fact that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead carries many important implications. Number one, it tells us that we're all human beings, therefore as human beings we're all spiritually dead, spiritually bankrupt. 
all by nature evil, all by nature estranged from God, alienated. We all need a Savior. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means that God has a judgment upon your life because of your sin. That again, unless you repent and believe upon the person of Christ, you most certainly will face him in that coming day of judgment. And number three, dear friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is undeniably the proof of the love of God. It's proof of the love of God, that salvation with God is possible, that reconciliation with God is possible. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, let me tell you what, is a declaration to men of God's mercy. It is a declaration of God to sinful men of his magnificent mercy. He wants to treat you in kindness. He wants you to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants you to repent and know him as father and not know him as judge. Paul's message was not the message of an idle babbler. His message was the sweet message of hope. The world's only hope. This is the message the world needs to hear. Jesus Christ did not die for himself because he has no sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. He died to pay your penalty, the penalty for sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of our favorite verses around, around here. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's the doctrine of substitution. The fact that God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, stands in the place of the sinner. That God the Father lays upon Jesus Christ all of our iniquity. That God the Father treats the person, the sinless person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, as if he committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe. He who knew no sin, the sinless one, perfectly innocent of any sin. Yet God poured out his holy wrath upon him and punished him for our sins so that he would not have to punish us. That's good news. And by punishing Christ, God's holiness, God's righteousness and his demands to pay the penalty of sin have been justified, have been uh, uh, taken care of. And the Bible says Christ did it all willingly. He did it willingly out of love. He came and willingly suffered in our place. And in doing so, in that transaction that takes place on the cross, God imputes to Christ or credits to Christ our sin. And then for the repentant believer, credits to us the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's called the great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness, our forgiveness based on his suffering and death. He didn't have to die, but he chose to do so. He does it again out of love. Romans 5 and 8 says, God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, yet Christ died for us. Again, the fact that God raised him from the dead on a Sunday morning is evidence of the fact that God accepted his sacrifice in full. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ has been fully accepted by God the Father for your punishment. He died so that you would not have to. He rose so that you might have new life. Again, justice has been dealt with. Holiness has been upheld. God's wrath has been turned aside. Eternal forgiveness is available for all who would repent and believe. That is the message of hope. That is the world's only hope, believing upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who took our sin, who defeated death, who rose triumphantly from the grave. It's not a myth. It's a fact of history. Jesus Christ, rising from the dead, changes everything. And if you repent and come to him, you'll never face him as judge. You'll only know him as father. David in Psalm 1611 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there's pleasures forevermore. You're not going to find joy or pleasure or happiness or hope in the world or anything that the world has to offer you. Paul said in Romans 8.1, There's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things come. He offers life. Life in time. And Jesus Christ lives either to be your Savior or your judge. That's the truth. My encouragement to you this morning, if you don't know Christ, I would beg you to respond to the truth. Repent. Come to the Savior. Embrace the risen Lord Jesus Christ so you'll not have to face him as judge. And forevermore, the powerful historical truth of the resurrection 
of the person of Jesus Christ will change your life in time and for all eternity. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this wonderful truth that you and your kindness have provided for us, the great glorious truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We just stand amazed and in awe of you. Pray you take these truths, Lord, and press them into the hearts of those who have heard that there would be an immediate response, not a delayed response, but a response that would lead them to life, lead them to joy and happiness and the hope that you offered men. We love you. We're so thankful for your kindness, your mercy to us in Christ. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.